Well, listen, everywhere you look, truth is on display. Everywhere you look, truth is on display. This is true every single day, every single night, no matter where you go or what time period of history that you live in. But I think especially in this season, there are things for us to observe. Take dark and light for a moment. We see nightly sermons right now that preach really powerful realities to us. Consider darkness. Darkness is pervasive. It is ever-present, and it's menacing. Light breaks through and wins every time against darkness. Always, without fail. There is no flash-dark setting on your phone. Right? Try as you might, you can't find that. It's not because Apple hasn't invented yet. It's because God doesn't allow that. Light breaks through darkness. Darkness does not break through light. So light wins all the time. Take this bench on the screen for a moment. This bench, uh, same bench, same neighborhood, may feel inviting and warm and Christmassy, or it might feel cold and scary, depending on the presence or absence of light. Truth is on display everywhere we go. As you drive around this week, observe the endless variety and sort of the nuanced differences of light breaking through the dark. Here's what's powerful. In my neighborhood, we like to walk around, drive around. We love to look and see what our neighbors are putting up. It's just a fun tradition in our home. And I'd venture to guess not everyone there is trying to proclaim the light of Jesus Christ in this season. Uh, I can tell that by all the sort of goofy stuff that's up all over the place. And try as they might, they can't ruin Christmas. Because as a Christian, I see that as light breaking through the darkness. I see that as the goodness of God, that they're able to reflect God's image and truth, even if they don't know they're doing it, even if they're not trying to do it, even if they are actively trying to steer it away from the true meaning of Christmas. I still see that as God's truth on display. As you drive around, or as you pay attention to a sunrise, anyone up early enough to see sunrises? A couple of you. Yeah, don't be shameful about that. That's great. I saw the sunrise this morning. Every single morning, light breaks through. So as you drive around at night, as you see a sunrise, ponder these truths and actually think about how it makes you feel. Think about walking down a street that's well lit and Christmassy and just sort of the things that it stirs you up. Truth is on display everywhere, all day long, all night long. Now, the visible world helps point us to think about the invisible world. So there's not only darkness without, this happens each 24-hour cycle like clockwork, right? It's called sunset and nighttime, but there's also darkness within. So how do you deal with the dark? And not just like dark in general, but let me make it really more pointed. How do you deal with your dark? That's a different question even than how you deal with the dark, isn't it? Everyone has the dark, and everyone tries to deal with it in some way. Let me give you maybe a couple of things, see if any of these ring true. Avoidance is common. What? Dark? Secrets? Me? No. None of that. Never. 
and the exhausting game of charades continues. Right? Those who try to avoid uh, just, just are exhausted. In fact, I would say it this strongly. You are a liar if you say you have no dark. You know who taught me that? Jesus. You're a liar if you say you have no dark. All right, how about deflection? Like master magicians, we sometimes try to hide our dark by deflecting attention away from it. If you are currently or know someone who currently is spending absolutely all of their effort on externals, like clothes and hair and the bod and the cars and whatever else might be seen outward, it may be, it may be a deficient inner life, a starving inner life. If everything is always on the external, here's another truth Jesus taught me. Life consists of more than food and clothing. What did our first parents do? They tried to make clothes out of some leaves to hide their shame. That still doesn't work, does it? No matter how dressed up you may get, that doesn't work. So that's deflection. How about blaming and shaming? I think blaming and shaming are sort of the cousins to deflection. And this is pointing out specks of dark in other people without paying attention to your own dark. A disappointed burglar left an angry note for some homeowners of the home that he broke into on October 10th. Police say this guy made off with about $400 in cash and some jewelry, but clearly he was hoping for some more. They found a note condemning the owner for locking the house when he didn't really have that much valuable stuff inside. That's a sick way to deal with your darkness, right? And it's kind of ridiculous until you realize it's not. That blaming and shifting and, and you know, pointing out elsewhere instead of dealing with your own junk is alive and well. In fact, I would say it's rampant in our culture. Well, let me give you one more. Some people embrace the dark. They run the other way. So in other words, while people are trying to get themselves out of it, some just run straight towards the dark. They don't avoid, they don't deflect, they don't blame, they don't run. Uh, they, they, they run toward the dark. Let me just tell you, this is a seriously dumb strategy that always will lead to tragedy. Always. Terrible idea. Uh, we, we're going to see this in 1 Timothy 4, by the way. We're ending chapter 3 today. We're going to get into 1 Timothy 4 in, um, in January, and you'll, you'll just see this played out in the church. Let me tell you about Kevin Teague. He's a recent example of this. On October 6th, Kevin broke into a home in Williamsburg, Michigan. Yes, Lucas. Before residents chased him away. Uh, police found him in the backyard of his parents' house, so he escaped the darkness that he was already in by disappearing into the forest behind his house. Now, like Christoph before him, Kevin got lost in the woods, right? North was south, east was west. He didn't have a clue where he was. Embracing the dark seems like a really great plan until it isn't. It seems like a good thing to do, to go further into dark, to continue to hide, but eventually it devours you. Kevin eventually was like a prodigal son. You know what he did? He called 911 from the forest. So on the same day, he got rescued and arrested. 
But I really do. I, I look at that. I pray for this young man. I just go, gosh, I don't know this guy. I don't know many people in Michigan except for Lucas. Um, but, I, but I pray for this guy that this would be a turning point for him, right? That he could see sort of the inner spiritual life uh, that sort of is mimicked by his, his actual physical life. So everyone's dark is a little different, and everyone deals with the dark in different ways. So how's it going for us? How's it going for you personally? Today's text, we basically come to two central figures in world history that make really fantastic claims, and that they say they deal with the dark. That they actually deal with the dark. They are the church and the gospel. That's what we're going to see in the text today. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you're not there, turn there. Uh, We've been in this book written by Paul, an older pastor, written to Timothy, a younger pastor, and it's a letter to people in crisis. Why is there urgency? Why is there a crisis? Because they have replaced truth with lies. There are lies sort of coming and sneaking in from all sides. So Paul turns his attention. We've arrived at the few verses in this letter that are sort of at the very center of it, not just physically in the center of the letter, although it's kind of roughly in the middle of the letter, but it's the, it's the, the big idea that Paul is getting to it through the whole letter. I sort of have challenged you during this next Christmas season, maybe have a little bit more time, listen to or read 1 Timothy all the way through in one sitting. You see things in the flow of a letter when you read it straight through the way it would have been read at a church than you do sort of dissecting it week by week. I think both are really, really valuable. But periodically, when I prep for a a book, I just listen to it, read it over and over and over in its entirety. So I kind of have a lay of the land. I I would commend that to you. It's such an amazing exercise to kind of go and do that. So here's the the, where the, the title for the series comes from, here's where sort of some central ideas are. That the church is a household of God uh, and that truth is a knowable mystery. That's where we're going this morning. So what Paul's doing is he's telling Timothy some really concrete, actionable realities. That when you don't do this, it messes things up immensely. So let me take the church as household and pillar and foundation of truth. Okay, that's where we're going. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I don't usually do this for you. I really want to drive you to keep looking at the scriptures, finding the scriptures, opening your Bible, bringing it, knowing that you're going to highlight in it. Um, but in case you're feeling sleepy this morning, or in case you're new and visitor and don't know where it is, I have a Christmas gift for you. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Here it is. First Timothy 3, 14 says this. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I think that people make both too little of the church and too much of the church sometimes. Now, lest this confuse you, we've been talking about this all along, that the church is not a place, it's people. It's not a building, right? But for image sake, we can kind of see this. Let's just say that you attend almost every week at church. It's possible to make too much of the church, even if you attend every week. Here's how. You may begin to lean on your gold star attendance as somehow God owing you. 
You may begin to be sort of tempted towards the older brother in the prodigal son story. I showed up every week, God. You may have a cold heart, an uncompassionate heart to those who maybe only come once a year or once in their life. That's how you make too much of it if you attend regularly. But I think you can also be tempted to make too little of church, even if you attend every week. Here's how. Isn't it true that if something's really, 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 really familiar, it loses its wonder or at least has the uh, possibility of doing that? It's possible that we would miss week in and week out coming. This is just our habit. This is what we do. We miss the grandeur of what we're actually doing here. We just sang some lyrics put to music that involuntarily just gave me chills as I sat there and thought about it. As I'm thinking about where we're going, as I think about the darkness without and the darkness within and the way that God actually deals with darkness and that light pushes back the darkness, some of the truths that we sang, again, just involuntarily said, yes, and my soul just agreed with it. We can sort of miss the grandeur if we come week after week after week thinking too little of it. Now, if you attend once or twice a year, uh, Christmas and Easter maybe, first of all, welcome. I mean, glad that you're here. That's a really, really good thing. I would like to remind those of you who attend twice a year that we're open year, year round. We're here every week at least on Sunday mornings and things between as well, but really, really thrilled you're here. Now, it's possible if you come twice a year to church that you actually make too much of coming to church. Here's how. Maybe you think, I've got to get there at Easter. I've got to get there at Christmas. Kind of get my yearly or six-month fill-up on God. i got to get some good in me. i got to feast on some truth. Here's how ridiculous that is. No matter how much Christmas roast you can shove in your belly in a few days, or how much Easter ham you can cram down your belly, you're going to be hungry again pretty quick. Just like we can't feed for the quarter, or feed for the month, or even feed for the week, so it is with truth. What we disseminate here, what we are doing here, is feasting on the salvation and goodness of God, week in and week out, in season and out of season. That's how you can be tempted to make too much of it if you don't attend church much. How do you make too little of the church when you don't tend to attend that much? You just don't show up. Much of the Bay Area this morning is not in church. I would venture to say most of the Bay Area is not in church. So it's possible to just think time is limited. My resources are are precious to me. I'm certainly not going to devote any time coming into the church. So people can drive by here all the time. Little humble neighborhood church that they wouldn't ever see or think is in any way relevant to their life. They have diminished the wonder of what God does in the church. So the church is God's household, meaning his family, not his house. I want you to think about this reality, that Christ is born physically uh, in in a regular family in Bethlehem. That's the Christmas story. But Christ is born spiritually in regular people, not in one place, but now all over the world. That's the seed planted at Christmas time. God's presence, no longer in a place, but in people. That's a powerful thought. That's a powerful reality. God's presence, no longer in a place, but in people. That's a good gift. That's a good presence to have for Christmas. So this means that the church is where 
people are. Where we gather, we are collectively the church. Friends, this is why no disease or government has any power to close the church. When it tries to, it goes underground into the catechisms, into house churches in China, or it goes online in the Silicon Valley, and much of the time, the church thrives when it's supposedly shut down by disease or government or some kind of a persecution. Read your history. You can't close the church. What happens if you kill people? Well, they're with Jesus. They're having their best day ever, and that tends to fan into flame the gospel. All right. So dwell well in the house of God has been our series. It's not just a matter of dwelling, but doing it well. I would venture to guess every single one in this room wants a great home life. You want a great household. You want it to be a pace of of peace and warmth and comfort and consistency. I also know this, that human flourishing requires human relating. Human flourishing requires human relating, and this is hard. (laughs) Human relating is just hard. If you have a hard time getting along with people, welcome to the human race. Keep running. Do the hard work of getting along. We say this all the time in our house. The book of 1 Timothy and the Bible more generally does some things for us. The Bible warns us that relationships are hard. There's a certain expectation that is set. I'm in the middle of some pre-marriage counseling right now. I don't sound like a Disney movie at all when I do pre-marriage counseling. I let Disney do Disney, love Disney, you do your thing, but I want to give them the reality of it. Foster the Bay has this, Foster the City has this value that is honest and hopeful. I don't think those two are in opposition. That's how I would say I do my pre-marriage counseling. I'm honest and hopeful. The Bible also gives instruction on how to relate well And maybe more importantly, how to recover when things go off the rails. Don't raise your hand, but you've had a fight this week. You either had it out loud or you acted it out, right? Those who don't speak out their problems act out their problems. And you either did it in big demonstrative ways or maybe you went really underground and you just sort of internalized. But everyone in this room has had a fight this week on some level. So how do you recover when things are going horrible? The Bible instructs us. You you can know how to behave in the household of God. Why? Because God's revealed it to us. He's given us his instructions. But his instructions would be nothing but crushing weight of disappointment unless this third reality were true. We are enabled by the presence and power of the risen Jesus to dwell well in the household of God. Amen? Without that, I promise you, you try to muster up the fruit of the Spirit, good luck. You can't do it. How much patience does it require to be married to your spouse? Don't answer, a lot. Look in the mirror. How much does it take for you? Probably more. How much patience does it take to have children? 
how much patience does it take to have parents? Right? I mean, like, we could just go on and on with this. But we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're empowered by the presence of Jesus in our life. As we've already seen in this series, 1 Timothy is no mere, like, manners training or ethics training. It's something far deeper that he's getting at. Living as God's family requires truth in the inmost beings. And the church, he goes on to say, is not only the household of God, but a pillar and foundation or buttress of truth. Let's look at what that means. So truth exists, truth matters, and truth can erode over time. Therefore, it must be fought for and defended. If you grew up in a city that housed one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, you would know it, and it would sort of dominate some of your city identity. I grew up in San Jose, and in San Jose, we had the Winchester Mystery House, hardly one of the you know, seven wonders of the world, but I knew what it was. It was down the street from me. I was always amazed when I'd be like super far away, like Vacaville as a kid, and I'd see a billboard for the Winchester Mystery House, beautiful or bizarre. And I'm like, I live there. I'm near the Win. We're famous. We got a billboard in Vacaville. Well, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was located in Ephesus. This city that Paul is writing to, it's called the Temple of the, Gar- of the Goddess Artemis. And it's in modern day Turkey. And so as Timothy is writing this and talking about pillars and buttresses of the truth, I can only, I mean, it, it has to be that he has this imagery in mind. It's not there for sure, but there's an impressive structure that dominates some of the family or some of the city culture. Here's a sort of artist's rendition of what they think this looked like. A prominent feature, pillars. A foundation, of course, is what structures rest on. What do pillars do? Well, they support the load. They hold up walls. They hold up roof. Think about hidden pillars called studs in our walls, right? These are the things that hold things up. So as this temple is a monument to the false goddess Diana or Artemis of Ephesus, so the church is to be for the one true living God of the Bible. Powerful metaphor. Now, every time you walk through this, my opening statement rings true. Man, everywhere you look, truth is being preached. That's, that's a monument to lies. How do we as the church build a monument to the truth? I better get some vegetables for mom, right? That's just like on the way to the store or whatever. You might see that, that structure. Notice that the church doesn't make truth, but it builds upon truth, upholds the truth, proclaims the truth, defends the truth. This is why sound doctrine is so incredibly important. Like all of your relationships, churches struggle. Why? Because they're made up of people in relationship. So churches struggle and must not only be governed and taught the truth, but live and defend the truth. Not in your notes, but jot down 1 John 
1 John 3.19 says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, before God. If you ever come across a verse like this, don't just keep reading. You ought to stop and go, what? Wait, what is the this? By this we know we are of the truth. What is the this? Well, here's one verse earlier. Right before it, it says in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we know that we're in the truth. We can reassure our hearts before God. When the enemy comes and accuses you, you say, nope, that's it. So what are we focused on as Christians? What are we focused on as a, as a church? Love truthfully. Love truthfully. Is that easy to remember? I think so. Love truthfully. You've lost your way. You're at a family gathering this week. You're feeling the darkness of yourself rage inside. You're like, what am I supposed to do? Love truthfully. How do I love according to the truth? If you forget, go back to the scriptures. This is what we're devoted to. The doctrines of any church or organization simply consist of their teachings, their instructions, sort of their fences. Remember fences and freedom we've been talking about. Well, the doctrines of a church are vital to this being a reality. It's not enough to have doctrines, but to live according to them. Martin Luther said this, as doctrine is, so also is life. If the doctrine is filled with lying, life is hypocritical. In the church, doctrine is pure, and therefore life too, so that the truth of both doctrine and life are preserved. Take another look at the great temple of the goddess Artemis. This picture on the right was taken in 2017 at the exact site of that temple. The years have not been kind. (laughs) Truth exists. Truth matters, and truth erodes over time. If it's not cared for, if it's not maintained, it erodes over time. If you're a believer, hear me. This is on us. This is on you as a Christian. Are church leaders a part of that? Absolutely. Huge burden on us. But every regular Joe and Jane Christian, this is on us to contend for the faith. Stop being contentious with the faithful. Contend for the faith. Light pushes back the dark. This is on every single one of us. I love this quote. I find it so challenging. From John MacArthur, he says this, the church has the stewardship of scripture, the duty to guard it as the most precious possession on earth. Churches that tamper with, misrepresent, depreciate, relegate to second place, or abandon biblical truth, listen to this, destroy their only reason for existing and experience impotence and judgment. Sadly, the church in Turkey right now is decimated. What are Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus? Return to your first love, church. Man, the things you did at the beginning, go back to doing those. 
Your love has grown cold. How important is love? Well, if loving truthfully is how we can reassure our hearts before God that for sure we're in the truth. If we're loving truthfully, no matter what else we don't know or what else feels like around us, we can assure that. I can only guess historically that by and large, they didn't return to their first love in mass or else the, the, the church in Turkey would be exporting Christians like crazy to evangelize the rest of the world. So the church deals with the dark by dealing in truth, striving to live the way that God designed it. And we deal with the dark by holding fast to the truth. Or maybe a better way of saying that is this. The truth deals with our dark by holding fast to us. That might be even more accurate. So what is this truth? He goes on in the next couple of verses to talk about it. And here's a little warning, by the way. The truth of God is never what we would make up. It does not make sense to us. It's almost always backwards, upside down, reversed of how we would ever dream it up. So Paul writes six statements exalting something he calls the mystery of godliness. Look at it in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Then he goes on to list six things. It's like a little, three little couplets of, of, of words. Let me just stop on mystery for one second. Mystery is a secret that has been revealed. That's the way it's being used here. Some truth is concealed, right? It's a mystery, and we are in the dark, so to speak, unless God shines the light of truth on and explains what's going on. Consider uh, parables Jesus told. His disciples know him. They're around him. They, it is lost on them until he explains it to them. Oh, okay. Once you see it, you're like, yeah, makes sense. Got it. The mystery of godliness is a secret that's been revealed. That's what's being talked about here. I know that we'd be really clueless to God's plan unless he told us what he was up to. And the way that I know that is because throughout all the centuries, men and women have been trying to guess at what God is like. Have been trying to guess about how to get to God. Try to guess on all these things. Imagine sort of clickbait for a video or an article that said something like this, how to be godly. It could be substituted with maybe less religious words, how to be good, how to be happy, how to be hashtag blessed, right? Whatever. So people are searching like, how am I supposed to be happy? How do you be good? How do you be godly? Think in your brain for a minute, what would be on that list? I think most lists consist of ethics. Do this, don't do that. We're going to tell you how to do this in three easy steps. Sweet. I love, it's called WikiHow. It's like Wikipedia, but it's like tells you how to do stuff. It's really, really funny. Like, just if you're ever bored, like, go look at, like, WikiHow, how to make a sandwich or whatever. And it has these little drawings of people doing it. breaks it down, like, really simple steps. So I didn't do this. I should have done this for this morning. How to be godly. WikiHow probably has an answer. Probably has to do with doing stuff and not doing other things. There's sort of secular clickbait for, for this. It has its own versions. Three steps to being the best version of you. The 22 changes you need to make to make 2022 your best year ever, right? I mean, these are the things you're like, yeah, I want that. Click. 
22, I got, I can do 22. And we're a bunch of religious and rebellious, secular and sacred uh, Pharisees running around trying to get the checklist done over and over and over again. Never dawns on us that things don't change. We did this last year. 2020 was, I was going to have perfect vision in 2020. I clicked that thing. I did all 20, uh, you know, things that didn't happen. So that's not the kind of list God gives for the mystery of godliness. We're going to look at these pretty quickly, but according to the Bible, the mystery of godliness consists of six things God has already done. Isn't that the gospel? You want to know the mystery of godliness? It's already been done for you. That's the mystery. What are the six things you have to do? Nothing. Now read the list of the six things God has already done. That's the gospel. This is the good news. Not what you must do or can do for God, but what he has already done for you. It's never been about what we do for God, but what's already been done for us. Here's a wild thought. None of us serve God. God serves us. Now, in response to it, we do things that we, we say in our mind, sort of a category for serving God. But God doesn't need servants. He's not indebted to us. I hope my servants show up because I have need. No, nonsense. He's a God that has no need. He's the one doing the serving. Who came to you? God did. Merry Christmas. It's called Emmanuel. Jesus coming in the flesh. Us not going to God, we never could. He comes and serves us. Godliness requires no rules to keep, no steps to follow, no habits to form, no activities to engage in, no clubs to join, no fees to pay. There are no key indicators for performances to achieve. Godliness is not about us, but about God and his great generosity. Do you want to know why the weary world rejoices every year at Christmas? Because of this. Man, we rejoice because we get to just lay it all down. Part of why I need church. The preacher needs church more than anyone in the church probably. I need church week in and week out to remember it's not a performance thing. God, it's all gift. I am your blessed and beloved son today. No matter what's going on around me or in me. We all get to lay down our avoidance, our blaming, our deflection, and let God's light break through and actually deal with our dark. I'm going to close by looking at these pretty quickly. Oops, let me go back to this. He was manifested in the flesh. Most commentators actually think this is talking about Easter. Post-resurrection, he was shown in the flesh, right? But doesn't this work at both Christmas and Easter? Aren't those both powerful bookends? He was shown in the flesh at Christmas in a helpless little baby, the most approachable, accessible thing you can imagine, in an out-of-the-way hick town in a stall. Again, you don't come up with this, people. No one does. By the way, he'd one day be a great king, but first, he's going to kind of trounce into Jerusalem as a reigning king on a donkey and get killed in a horrific way called the cross. So he was manifested in the flesh, and we celebrate the risen, victorious Jesus seen alive and well in the flesh after his death. That's a key thing of what God's accomplished. 
What do we sing? O come, O come, Emmanuel. He has. That's why we celebrate. Vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated or proven right by the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Jot down Romans 1.4. Again, I didn't put this in your notes. Uh, Romans 1.4 says this. Who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Number three is seen by angels. Christianity is profoundly historical. The little letter, 1 John, starts, these are the things we have seen and heard with our own eyes and ears, and we're announcing it to you. Christianity is supremely historical, and it's supernatural. It is historical and supernatural at the same time. When you read these six together, these six accomplishments, they sort of ping pong between the visible and unseen world. What that tells me is taken together, the domain of what God's accomplishing and doing is everything. It's exactly what you would expect from a creator God who's outside the universe that he created by the spoken word. So the prophets longed to see how this would all play out. Imagine giving a little part of the script, and you don't really know how it plays out, but you're like, whoa, I get to say that. Well, all the more, there are supernatural, angelic beings that, according to 1 Peter, they longed to know how it would play out as well. What's kind of amazing about it is God gifted them their desires. Who were the first on the scene to witness the resurrection? Angels. There was an angel there getting to see how this was fleshing out. So angels we have heard on high, we sing around this time. You know who started Christmas caroling, announcing good tidings to all men? It's the angels. We're sort of in a long line of tradition of angels. We got Christmas caroled already. It's been pretty awesome. Anyone get Christmas caroled yet? Someone show up at your door, start singing? If I was the Amazon guy, I would just Christmas carol everyone. I would just go around preaching the gospel through song. But we loved it. We had a really good time. Um, Consider doing that, blessing someone. Uh, How about this? Proclaimed among the nations. You know who's especially keen to the idea that God is going to take this thing and make it not just Jewish, but worldwide, Jew and Gentile? It's Paul. Paul plays a critical key role to this part of the plan. The guy writing the letter... When he was himself called from darkness into light, what happened in Acts chapter 9 to Saul of Tarsus? Blinded by the light. (laughs) There's light and dark again in a really powerful way. The light blinds him for a season. You think that would get your attention? I think so. Here's what's said to Ananias about Paul. Listen to this. Go to Paul. Ananias is terrified because Paul's a terrible dude. Go to Paul because he is the chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the world, to Gentiles, to kings, to people in other nations. So what's the carol that kind of pairs with proclaimed amongst nations? A lot of them, but how about joy to the world? Joy to the world. Think of the audacity of the things that we sing concerning baby Jesus around this time of year. We just sang the hopes and dreams of all the years 
are met in you tonight. Talk about expectations. We all put expectations on our kids. Whoa! Joy to the world. Let earth receive her king. That's a lot of pressure, unless it's true, right? If you put that on a regular human baby, that'll crush them. But in this case, it's true. How about the next one? Number five is believed on in the world. Don't put up fingers, but how many followers do you have? Jesus has more. How many views does your best post have? The Bible has way more. How many hearts and likes and emojis and whatever do you have? Jesus, a ton more. Who's the biggest influencer you can think of aside from Jesus? Exactly. Jesus outdoes them all. Ponder that for a second. Believed on in the world, all over the world, people continue to do this. They transfer trust in their self to get rid of the dark, and they place that trust on a savior to get rid of the dark. That's called being born again. That's what it means to become a Christian. Transfer your trust from yourself to a savior, Jesus Christ. That happens day in and day out without fail. Number one selling book of all time, and this year again, by a landslide such that it's never, ever, ever, ever commented on is the Holy Bible. In how many languages? I don't know either. A lot. And there's more being made every single day because people think it worth their while to give their life to translating the Bible to that tribe that doesn't have the word of God in their own language yet. Friends, Jesus Christ is believed on in the world. These are the things God does. You want to know the mystery of godliness? This is being done right now, every day. Number six, taken up in glory. What's that talking about? The ascension. We celebrate the birth of Christ, but we celebrate right on through through the death, the burial, the resurrection, and sometimes the often forgot ascension of Jesus Christ. What's the ascension about? That's his coronation. Do you know why every believer ought to be keenly interested in the ascension of Jesus Christ? Ascend simply means to go up. Here's what it is. Every follower ought to be keenly interested in the ascension of Jesus Christ because of this precise thing. Jesus dies a brutal death in front of his friends and followers and enemies' eyes before a watching world. It's well documented today in and outside of the church. He appears alive and well after death. That's huge news. Have you lost someone this year to death? Do you feel like you might be losing someone in the next couple of months or weeks? I grieve with you, but if that person's a Christian, we don't grieve in the same way of those who have no hope beyond the death. The ascension is proof positive that Jesus was not lying when he said, I came from the Father. I'm going back there. You know what leaders do? All leaders go first. They just pave the way. Why is this important for followers? That's our future, friends. We get to be alive and well and okay. More than okay, amazing after we die. Again, this is why no disease can ravage your hope in any way, shape, or form. Your treasure is so incredibly safe and secure in Jesus Christ. This is the mystery of godliness. No article comes up with this. 
No human being comes up with, hey, these are the six things God does. And then God does this. He just reveals it to us. We wouldn't know this unless he told us what it was. So God has dealt with our darkness. Christmas lights shine is said quite intentionally in the present tense. It means this, that they are still showing us the way out of the dark of our lives, out of the fog of our sin, and toward the truth. On your notes, I put, how do I apply this? You might just write this, light wins every time. Maybe that'll just kind of cue your brain. Light wins every time. Do you know how much light it takes to push back immense, vast, deep, scary, menacing, pervasive darkness? A tiny amount. Just a tiny amount. And it changes everything. Whoa. I feel comfort. I don't just have the light of truth. I have the warm coat of comfort right now with me. It's going to be okay. John 12, Jesus says this, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He goes on to say, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Imagine you're in a dark place. You hear the voice of Jesus that says this, this way. Hurry. You are in grave danger and you are running the wrong way. Turn around, follow me, I will get you home safely. Those who receive that word and rest in that word are saved out of the darkness. Get the picture? Those who don't receive that word, that's their judgment. They get to continue running into the forest of darkness. Band, why don't you come on up right now? Would you bow your heads and just close your eyes for a moment? Next Sunday, we're going to lay down 1 Timothy, and we're going to have sort of a special reflection service. It'll be a couple of days, actually the day after Christmas. Hope you come back. Love to gift you some time for reflection in a worship service, which is how we want to structure that. But right now, as the band gets settled, just take this 10 seconds. Ponder the things that the scriptures have said this morning.